You're listening to The Skeptic's Guide to the Universe, your escape to reality. Hello and welcome to The Skeptic's Guide to the Universe. Today is Saturday, October 28th, 2017, and we are live from PsyCon. This is your host, Stephen Novella, and joining me this week are Bob Novella. Not working. Hey, everybody. <laughs> I had a really creepy laugh. It's not working. Too bad. Paris <laughs> <Harrison> and Maria. <laughs> Howdy. Jay Novella. Hey, Steve. <laughs> Evan Bernstein. Hello, everyone. <laughs> and all the way from, well, not Australia, but Minnesota now, right? <laughs> Dr. Rachie. Hi. <laughs> you are ultimately, you're originally from Australia. Yes, and I now live in Wyoming, and I'm Wyoming. a cowboy now. So. Wyoming, right. Wyoming, yeah. Wyoming. It's my new thing now. I just ride horses every day. So you're an American now. Basically, I pay taxes, so I guess I am an American now. That's yeah. right. Yeah. <laughs> Social security. <laughs> Are you, did you maintain dual citizenship? No, I, I don't have citizenship. You're not a citizen. I'm not a citizen, no. You're, I have to live here for four alien. years. I'm an, an illegal, not illegal, a legal alien. Yeah. <laughs> I have a visa. Right. People say that to me. They say, "Oh, are you allowed to be here? Or are you like not allowed? I'm allowed to be here. People have a visa, or anything, so it's fine." Is it a work visa? Yeah, it's a work visa. Right. Yeah. We're going to be talking more about you know the difference between skeptical activism in Australia and the U.S. because now you've sort of been on both sides. Yeah. But we'll get to that in a minute. But actually, we're going to, this this is right in this hotel where we are right now. The picture that I'm showing you, and that's of course is Richard Saunders, another Australian skeptic. Um, so we were here a couple of days ago. We were here on Thursday, and Bob, Richard, and I were walking around. And of course, we walked by the, this Pure Life booth where they're selling all sorts of interesting items, including uh, these magnetic bands. You know that you essentially I don't know I do I like these like we like the ones you can get for just five dollars at the SGA booth. They're basically you know rubber, plastic, and you know plastic holograms. Like the power balance, and, and these, these things, there are so many of these things have been out. Um, they usually sell for like sixty to seventy or eighty dollars for literally a one dollar you know, piece of plastic, uh, with all sorts of claims. You know, we couldn't just walk by; we had to, we had to step up. But we didn't want to be the jerk skeptics, right? And we figured, oh, this poor woman is going for quite the weekend, you know, with the skeptic conference. <laughs> So we, you know, we engaged with her, you know, and, and, and she was very nice. She's, and she asked us, she said, well, do you know how they work? And I did say, well, yeah, they don't work. <laughs> uh, but that was the snarkiest I got. Then we know, so th she said, she started to launch into some of the, the boilerplate, you know, and I, she said, well, it's just, you know, she said, well, you know, this is just to make people feel better. But, you know, if you could see sort of right in the middle in the background, actually behind the woman in the middle, there's a list of things that it treats, and it includes real medical conditions. Like, what? like migraines is on the list, you know, which, of course, I took notice of. 
No, migraines are a real physiological. No, condition. no, I know, but you right. could actually, you know, you could have like a headache and put it on. And your yeah, but you're actually away. not allowed to name diseases. That's like you breaking the FDA rules when you do yeah. that. You could say it makes you feel better, but if you say it treats migraines, if you name a disease by name, you're actually breaking the law. Okay. Um, but anyway, it's like, and, but it also but anyway. other, it's other thing. Reduces inflammation. You know, that's a very dubious claim. Mm -hmm. So real physiological medical claims. And we said, you know, so you're making claims here. These are medical claims. And we went through, we gave the bait, the, the quickie background on, you know, the, you know, the applied kinesiology, how they test the things. And, you know, she, she was trying to be nice, but I could also tell, I don't think she was a true believer. I think she had a very superficial understanding of the product based upon the company's, you know, pamphlet yeah. and whatever. And that was it. She didn't care. You know what I mean? And, but anyway, we, we planted a seed. You never know. You know, we basically let her know, hey, listen, you know, this, 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 these things don't work and this is how people think. They try, they, of course, they try to do the, but if, the, if there's a placebo effect, that's still good, right? It's like, no, not really. Um, that's made, that's just yeah. deception. If anybody's here in three months, let us know if she's still working there. <laughs> <laughs> so Richard didn't freak out. No, 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 no. Um, no, because, you know, Richard's produced videos debunking these bands. Yeah. 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 So and he was telling me that, like, in these situations, people expect him to go up there, like, fire yeah. and brimstone, like, shut them down, you know. But what are you going to do? I mean, obviously, we're not going to be able to do that. But all we, we just politely explained our perspective and, yep. you know. Right here in the casino. Right here in the casino. Yep. Yeah. All right. Let's get started with our, our usual content. Kara, yes. what is the word for this week? Um, so we thought it would be fun to go with the word epistemology. I think that's a word that is often encountered when we are reading skeptical literature, when we're reading scientific literature, but definitely philosophical, psychological literature. And it's a word that is long and confusing sounding. So it's good. It, it has piss in the middle. It has piss in the middle, which is a bit exciting. And, and I do think it's one of those words that many people probably gloss over when they come across it. And it's not so easy to just use context clues with this one to fill in what it means. So defining it, you know, the two standard bears that I often use on the show are Merriam-Webster and Oxford. I'll look at other um, sources as well, but really Merriam-Webster is kind of like the American Standard Dictionary, and Oxford is the British Standard Dictionary. And they both have similar um, similar definitions, which have to do with um, the nature of knowledge, and, and specifically with the limits, validity, methods, and scope of knowledge, and the distinction between um, justified belief and opinion. So from a philosophical standpoint... But Kara, I have to interrupt you. How yes. do we really know what a word actually means? <laughs> <laughs> Did that just come to you? Just yeah, now? Just, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, from, I mean, a, a true, pure kind of philosophical definition of the word epistemology really has to do with the study of how we know what we know. Like, that's really what we're talking about. And as I've been back in school this semester studying clinical psychology, I noticed that this word gets thrown around a lot. And there are a lot of psychologists who almost scoff at the idea of the medical model. And they mm -hmm. scoff at the idea that somehow evidence-based knowing is the only epistemology available to us. So that's, I get some fun arguments there with my peers and my professors. Um, so the etymology of this word is a really good one. I love it when I can point to exactly who who first came up with the word. So it was James Ferrier in, in 1856. He was a Scottish philosopher. Um, and when you break down the group, Greek roots of the word, so you can look at it right there, epi, which is a prefix, which actually, I think just recently on the show, we did epicenter, mm -hmm. right? So yeah. we already talked mm -hmm. about that prefix. It means over, 
over. Yeah, yeah. yeah above. And um, sta, actually, um, sta, and then mology is the study of something, but sta is to stand, make, or meet, or be firm. So the literal translation early on was overstand, which ultimately morphed into understand, which is really strange because there's not really much good literature on how we went from thinking of things as thinking of them over things and then thinking of them as being under oh, things. Oh, I was thinking more of like when you overstand something, you really get it. <laughs> no, it's really that the idea of understanding first um, was developed as an overstanding. Yeah. Which but makes a little bit more sense to be over look, top something. Did you look at the word understand in its etymology, how it relates to that? Is that under, the word understand is older than epistemology, right? But I think that the original roots of those um, directions yeah. actually go back to a, an over so I development. Inter I interpreted the overstand mm -hmm. you know, in epistemology as it sort of sits above knowledge. That's kind of what Jay said. Hierarchically, yeah. no, not at all. Oh, you didn't. No, no, it's like it's like it's it's like a meta a, a meta kind of knowledge, right? It's knowledge about knowledge, so it's it's above knowledge. But the Greek roots are are even older than the word understand. Yeah. And so this idea of overstanding, I think that it it was a. Um, change in how, because we've talked about this a lot on the show, about how our language has so much of a kind of proximal mm -hmm. spatial component to it. Embodied right? cognition. Embodied cognition, exactly. And I think this is one of those things where overstanding and understanding at the root really are the same thing. I overstand. Yeah, yeah there you go. All right. Um, and then, of course, the scientific study of the roots and paths yeah. of knowledge. Ooh, wow, that got loud. Um, which is different than um, the philosophic understanding, but they're, they're similar, is actually called epistemics. And that didn't come about until... Um, 1969. It's not as old as I thought it would mm -mm. be. Even the you know, 1850, what would you say? 18, I know. Yeah. I, thought, I thought it would be a much older word than that. Yeah, I mean, obviously, I think the earlier philosophers did sort of um, ruminate on the nature of knowledge, but they didn't actually have a name they for the field. They didn't have a word for studying. the field. Yeah. Exactly. It's Perfect. interesting that they crafted the word, right? So they pieced it together mm -hmm. to make to make a, an aggregate meaning out of it. I like it when that happens. When you can actually point to the person who first coined a term and they sat down and they thought about the Greek and Latin roots mm -hmm. and they came up with a word that, etymologically speaking, makes sense yeah. instead right. of just pulling something out of their ass. So does that, do you think that that still happens today? Like, I don't think the, the phrase like bling bling had. But I wouldn't call bling bling a scientific Yeah, I don't think anyone deliberately constructed Oh, but that. scientists do it a lot. But they also are really good at um, at naming things in a kind of a tongue-in-cheek way. And I'm always really excited when I see that, like references to Star Wars or Harry Potter mm -hmm. or things like that, you know, in scientific um, uh, Or naming. quarks. Quark. That's a good yeah, one. Three quarks, quarks from Musty Mark. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And, and, you know, epistemology is one of those things that I think skeptics need to know. Mm -hmm. And, you know, there's been a little bit of uh, discussion within skepticism about the relationship between science and philosophy, and in fact, even the need for philosophy in science. And that, of course, you know, is epistemology, is the philosophy of how we but know stuff. There are stuff. people who think we don't need to study philosophy. Yeah. yeah like, what? I hope none of you are in this yeah. room. Yeah. So, <laughs> what? There, there were some pretty heavy hitters in like the Stephen science. Stephen Hawking? Yeah. 
Yeah. Well, we but it's kind of like he's not really defining philosophy. That's the point. Yeah. It's like, it's like he uses philosophy. You're all doing the time. philosophy. Yeah, you don't exactly. just you, you just don't realize it. But that's the worst thing you want to do. You don't want to. It's like doing science, but not realize you're doing science. Yeah, and it's also if you have thing. a PhD, you have a doctorate of philosophy. Yeah. That is your degree, right? Like you should probably have studied at least some foundational. No, philosophy. I agree. And I think that's a legitimate criticism. I think of science education mm-hmm. is that we need to teach scientific the, the philosophy of science. As Absolutely. Just Part and parcel of it, right? Yeah. yeah I, is that different in Australia? I mean, do you think that there's more philosophy or less philosophy in Australia? Is that yeah, a in, cultural in the, difference? In the down over, what do they think? No, there is not. The, the philosophy of science is not taught in undergraduate degrees in Australia at all. Yeah. In, in fact, it's considered a soft science, so people don't. <laughs> Treat it as a proper. Thing. Yeah, it's, yeah. it's a problem. It, it really is a problem. It absolutely, is a problem. Yeah. yeah, I was lucky enough in my undergrad to I I was a psychology major, but I was a philosophy minor, and we actually had really interesting courses. I took a lot of religion courses for my minor, but I also took a philosophy of natural science course and a philosophy of psychology and the mind course. And I think that those influenced my graduate study almost more than the courses that I took in my major. Mm-hmm. They were really, really informative. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So now I'm hearing like de- under and over too much. I know. You're know, yeah. undergrad, not like you're over. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's going to pop up throughout <laughs> the show. Sorry, this, guys. Whenever we do the word thing, I'm always like, for a couple of days after we do the show, you hear it all the I'm time. I'm hearing like, what's the, there's a name for that phenomenon? Like when you hear something that you see it everywhere. Oh yeah, like in the movie Pie. Like an earworm yeah. or something. It, no, but there's a, there's a, I forget. So, so I got a, um, I got a message on Twitter recently from somebody who said, new record, the word of the week last week, and this is when we did Epicenter, appeared in my PhD thesis 116 <laughs> times. <laughs> Good work. That's great. What was his PhD thesis on? Earthquakes, Earthquakes probably, yeah. <laughs> Okay, so as we're recording this, we're a few days before Halloween, and one of our favorite holidays, we love Halloween, but one of the, one of the annoying things about Halloween is that every cracky-ass journalistic, other than Bob, besides Bob's fascination with all things Halloween, he wanted to do an all-Halloween episode, by the way, like just, you're getting that, right? Come on. Yeah? Don't encourage him. Um, so anyway, every you know, every media outlet, not just the bad media outlets, they have to do their fluff Halloween haunted ghost whatever story, and it's horrible, and they know it's horrible, but they got to do it. Um, so this was just the one that hit my radar this time. Asking this simple question out loud could boost your chances of speaking to the dead. Say experts. Well, can can't hurt your chances, can it? <laughs> It's not going to reduce your chances. Right. Correct. I agree with that. What is their expertise? Yeah, it, their yeah. expertise is in this. It's in ghost hunting. It's in speaking to the it's dead. It's in being gullible about ghosts. That's yeah. their expertise. They are experts at speaking to the dead, which means they are just as good at it as I am. So you have a degree in baloney. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. They're just as good at what they do as everyone else. Anyone can speak to the dead. It's whether they respond, yeah. right? Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. exactly. They're saying that your chance of getting a response, they could, they could improve your chance. Of What's the question? Response. What do you think? Are you dead? <laughs> it's, it's, just, it's just so I cut like pop childish psychology kind of stuff. It's like, don't ask them, is anyone there? You should ask them, what do you want? what's your name? 
Because then you're assuming that they're there, and they're more likely to then respond to you. And that does make sense, because in D&D, if you know the name of a, of a demon, say, you can control it. But you have to know their true name. Yeah, okay. Not just their... their now this is, getting, this is not simple anymore. Right, okay. but they didn't mention the true name in here, or rituals, or demons. Just... Um, what is yeah, happening? It was it's really like... Anyone in this room, anyone in this room could have sat down and wrote, in this, writ, wrote this article off the top of their yeah. head just with just making shit up that sounds good. That's basically what it, what it was. But Actually, probably people in this room have more expertise about yeah. how to debunk yeah, right. this, yeah. right? Yeah. Probably, probably some, everybody yeah. in this room. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. But that's, in the early days of the New England Skeptical Society, we would get you know, asked... To participate in this sort of thing, and we yeah. did because why not? You know, but um, like we got asked to like uh, investigate a haunted house, several, um, and to you know go to a graveyard where their ghosts are appearing. Lots of ghosts are like the big thing in New England, by the way. I don't know if you hmm. know that. I mean, it's kind of everywhere, but there there are cultural differences and regional differences. Warrens and, are from Connecticut, yeah, yeah, like definitely New England ghost. Well, Salem, all that, yeah, stuff. yeah. because yeah. of that. Yeah, just the history, it's it's very big. The Warrens, you know, hail hail from there. Okay. All right, Rachie. So I'm interested. You have some interesting ideas about why maybe you guys have been a little bit more successful recently than your American counterparts or issues. Yeah, well, um, I do a lot of uh, grassroots activism in Australia, which many of you know, but we, through Australian Skeptics Incorporated and through Stop the Australian Vaccination Network, or SABN, we campaign against misinformation that is spread by anti-vaxxers. And I've lived in this country now for about two years, and every time I'd give lectures before I moved here, people would say to me, what can we do to be as successful as you guys have been in Australia? Because we have been extremely successful in quashing the spread of the anti-vax movement in Australia, and that has led to things like policy change at the level of government um, and Interventions that really have, been, have actually translated into increased vaccination rates of kids. So just to cover a little bit of background, we recently, our government introduced a policy called no jab, no pay. And that means if you're not up to date with your immunizations, you don't get a tax benefit. So you actually lose money at the end of the day. And there was a, a, a lot of debate about this policy before it was introduced, and people were saying it's a coercive policy, you need a carrot, not a stick, it's not going to work. And the very early results show that 200,000 more kids have been vaccinated. Wow. It's really interesting to me how anti-vaxxers are so convinced that they won't vaccinate, as soon as you say there's money involved, they're like, okay then, it's fine. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's so principled, you know. <laughs> so, but I think the, the, it's a unique environment that we have in Australia, which is extremely different to here. And I didn't really fully understand it, and I don't still, but since I've been here, I've been trying to just observe and work out what some of the major differences are that may have contributed to the success we have. I think one of those things, first of all, is that... Um, the freedom of speech issue here is sacrosanct in that sense. So in Australia, we do not have freedom of speech in our constitution. But aside from that, we have journalists who are quite happy to just shut anti-vaxxers down and not interview them, not speak to them. Whereas here, it seems to me more that there's a there's very much an attitude of but everyone should have 
the opportunity to present their opinion. Whereas in Australia, they're like, no, not necessarily. Um, one of the other things that I think is really different and I think is really important in contributing to the way the media and the government deals with anti-vaxxers is we have socialised healthcare. So it actually costs our government money if people don't vaccinate. And so they're trying to protect the public health system and so they're simply saying, well, we're not going to give you money if you don't vaccinate. And they can do that. They can punish people because we have free health care. Mm-hmm. And that's a huge difference, I think. But let me, let me speak to that, though, because it's more complicated than what you're saying. Because in, in the U.S., insurance companies put the bill for stuff, and they don't want to pay for stuff that doesn't work either. So what happens is they don't. They say, no, we're not paying for this because it's not, it's not, it doesn't work, you know. And then people lobby the state legislature to pass laws to force them to pay for it. So, yeah. so it's still being decided at the government level to pay for alternative medicine over the heads, basically, of the insurance companies. And my concern would be if you know, the more the government is in control of those decisions, we're still going to have to fight the same fight. You know? And it might be partly that you know, we have 50 fights to fight because it's in every state, whereas because basically states run healthcare in our country, not yeah. the government, yeah. not the federal government. Well, we have both. We have levels at state level yeah. and federal level. So yeah. um, some of our laws are, are, are instigated at a federal, and then the state yeah. follows. I would say the other thing that really contributes to the success of the anti-vax movement here is simply money. Mm-hmm. I mean, we've got people like Dr. Oz and McCullough, and it was, um, we saw a picture of Mike Adams before. These people have huge amounts of money to throw at this stuff, and Recently, we've had Vaxxed coming to Australia, and that's really interesting because they are bankrolled by Andrew Wakefield mm-hmm. and um, Polly Tommy, who don't have a shortage of money, and so we actually managed to disrupt them quite significantly to the point where we actually got Polly Tommy banned from re-entering Australia for three years. Her visa was cancelled as she was escorted out of the country. And that was incredible. And um, that has really disrupted her plans to come back to Australia and set up autism trusts in Australia. Did they, like, put her on a raft and, like, push it away? <laughs> they actually pushed it to New Zealand. They went. And, and, in fact, we, we had in the country... Um, Del, Del Bigtree wouldn't come, by the way, because he... He said he was busy on other projects, but also we think he's had some visa issues. They did all of this in secret too because they knew if we found out they were intending to come that we would find a way to stop them. So they came, but then they got banned anyway. Um, But Susan Humphreys also came, but there was some kind of falling out between her and Polly Tommy within Australia and New Zealand, and we don't know exactly what happened, but Susan Humphreys since has left the Vax tour in America and just disappeared off the face of the earth. We think she may have copped a ban as well, but we don't know. The other thing that's interesting is that uh, we've been watching all the videos, myself not personally, but other people have, and Polly Tommy has said on video that she is banned not just from Australia but from all Commonwealth countries now as a result of this ban. And we can't find any evidence that a ban in one country would replicate into other Commonwealth countries. There's no precedent for that that we can find. So if that's true, that sets a huge precedent. Um, But in addition to that, that would quash any plans that she had to go into India because Andrew Wakefield was talking about taking the vaxxed bus into India on the back of the fact that the Gates Foundation is no longer welcome in India and they were funding a lot of the immunisation programs there. Why did that happen? 
Um, it was because the Indian government was worried that there was conflicts of interest in, um, even though they're not of profit, but that they would be influencing policy too much that private companies, I'm not really sure of the details, but yeah, they're not in there anymore. So Wakefield saw an opening and was like, well, let's get the backs of us in there. Um, so anyway, polytomy is not allowed back in Australia, uh, which is, you know, we're quite happy with that. That kind of thing, you can't stop here, you know. Yeah. However, she is, by the way, she's on a green card in America. She's not a citizen here. So I'm not sure how that's going to affect down the track her potential to renew her green card if she's been banned from another country. don't know. Take a closer look, maybe. Well, you guys can report her to Border Force like someone in Australia did. I don't know who. Um, <laughs> yeah. Rachel, do you feel like your, your government, the people in the government, are more reasonable, rational than the U.S.? We have our share of loonies as well. Um, we, in fact, I don't know if any of you guys know, but we did have a guy who just actually lost his position in the government like two days ago. But he was a freeman on the land, a conspiracy theorist. Um, he went up against Professor Brian Cox in Australia. I don't know, does anyone remember this? And it was, it went pretty much viral because he wanted to have a debate with Professor Brian Cox about the evidence for climate change. And Brian Cox was just like, you're a nubdy, mate. It's not going to happen. Um, but we do generally, on a percentage basis, maybe have more rational politicians, yeah. Um, but the thing is, we have worked, Stop the Australian Vaccination Network have worked to um, create those relationships. Yeah. And we do a lot of stuff behind the scenes that we can't talk about and we don't have to. But um, we have curated relationships with journalists. So we feed stories to the media. So they don't have to do it. And that's so great for journalists because if they don't have to go and seek out stuff and then write stories about talk to the dead and stuff, they've got a story fed to them. They'll publish it. But you were telling me the other night or last night that the media is different, right? You still have traditional media in the way that things were maybe 20 years ago in the U.S. And you can make those relationships in the U.S. today, it, yeah. it's you know hundreds or thousands of media sources you'd have to have a relationship with. It's so overwhelming here that I don't think you could even a drop in the ocean would would be that. You know, I mean, we only have what we have two: one national newspaper and three or four others that um, uh, we only have Fairfax and Murdoch. So there's not that many yeah. people in the mix anyway. Right. It was like a hundred people in Australia, right? There are. 100 <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. But, but one of the other things we've, we have done successfully over many, many years is report practitioners to their regulatory bodies when they do stuff. And that has been really successful. And in the last, I have a list here, <laughs> we've had the registration suspended of two general practitioners in the last six months and a chiropractor. And that is purely based on their anti-vaccination propaganda. And, and one of the things that is really a boon for us, actually, is the anti-vaccination network themselves, because one of these GPs who got suspended, the reason he did was because he was speaking at a rally and saying he would sign fraudulent exempt exemptions for patients so that they could get the money from the government and he would basically say, your child is vaccinated when the kid wasn't, right? Wow. Wow. But the anti-vaxxers filmed that and broadcasted it. <laughs> and yeah. we were like, thank you. <laughs> so, and the thing is, they are partly responsible for the introduction of a lot of new legislation mm -hmm. because they do stupid stuff like that. 
Um, and so all we have to do is just take it and pass it on to the correct people. Right. Yeah. So they have been really great for us. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Keep up the good work. So, yeah. you, just have, you have just dumber Andy Maxes than we did. Possibly. Um, <laughs> but we've also had... Um, the, the, it's also resulted in policy now where a lot of the regulatory boards for like nurses and midwives, for example, we have a particular problem with nurses and midwives being yeah. anti-vax. And the Midwives Association has now stood up and, and made a policy, and also they've made a social media policy that says you cannot comment outside of your area of expertise on social media, and you cannot make anti-vaccination comments. Wow. And so we just troll Facebook for five minutes and then make a screenshot and send it to their board, and we've currently got one nurse suspended yeah. for that. Yeah. Um, and there's a whole mo- there's in fact at the moment our regulatory body, which is the Australian Healthcare Practitioners um, Association, they have a backlog of 1,800 complaints, most of which came from Australian skeptics and other people, and they can't they had to employ more people to deal with the complaints that they have to, that they've been getting. Yeah. So, so did I hear you correctly? Did they in essence say if somebody says something stupid on social media, they're going to do something about it? Yeah. <laughs> you know what that would take in America to, put, to police? That would be off the charts. Well, the other thing that we managed, not only us, but what has changed is that you used to be able to conscientiously object to vaccination on a physio philosophical grounds, right? And there used to be a religious exemption. And we don't really have any religions in Australia that actually don't allow you to vaccinate. But you could just say, look, I don't feel like doing it, and the government would let you take the money anyway. They've removed that clause now. So there's no loophole left. And this is what I was saying earlier. I find that really interesting because the anti-vaxxers don't seem to be, you know, their principles seem to be pretty loose because they're like, we're never going to vaccinate. And then it's like... Well, we're taking away two thousand dollars. Okay, we'll vaccinate. So, you know, everyone has a price. Yeah, exactly. So, yeah, I mean, I, but to summarise, I think it's it's a completely different climate. Yeah. So you really can't translate what we do there to here. It's a it's a huge. It's it's. it's I mean, for a start, your population is just huge. I mean, it's it's funny because Australia is about the same size as America, right? But we have nothing in the middle. <laughs> like just some. 100 people. Is, some is it 20, 23 million people? 24 million, yeah. yeah. 24 million. Yeah. 320 million in yeah. America. Yeah. Yeah, so I think yeah, there's two differences, and I think they're related to each other, and a lot of it is cultural and re- regulatory, which flows from the cultural differences. Like, if I complained about somebody speaking outside their area of expertise, nothing would happen. Yeah. Because they would say, well, they have academic freedom. You know, the the whole, the freedom thing is like, that's the go-to defense. That's right, yeah. And if, and I have complained, I mean, over the last 20 years, I've submitted plenty of complaints to state boards of health. I've been an expert witness on trials for state boards of health trying to act against physicians and complained to the FDA, to the FTC. And um, there just isn't the political will to ultimately act on it. And even when the regulators are inter- interested, they get blocked by the legislature. Yeah. Yeah. And so it's tough because we basically, it's kind of what I was talking about yesterday, is that we were kind of behind the eight ball uh, in that score. The other side, which is well-funded, has done a really good job of sort of blocking us out by saying, oh, no, nope, freedom, you can't t- stop us yeah. from saying, well, we want to stop. Nope, nope, this is, you know, this is acceptable. You can't, you know, you can't really block the regulatory agencies. And so we, you know, I think we can maybe learn from what you guys, I think I've had a lot of more positive feedback. So you're doing what works. 
we're trying to do the same things, but it's not working. So yeah. it's hard to keep doing it. We we have to figure out what we do need to do. I think maybe money and lobbying. We need, I think, but it might just be ten times harder, yeah. in or maybe fifty times harder yeah. in the U.S. But I think we still have to do that. We have to start moving the conversation to well. Sure, freedom is is great, and we're not we absolutely one hundred percent endorse you know freedom of speech and all that. But there still needs to be standards, and people need to be held to you know, standards of expertise, and there's professional standards, and there's academic standards, and those should not be thrown away in this yeah. vague reference to freedom. I mean, this whole issue around freedom of speech comes up a lot with this issue, and freedom of speech doesn't entitle you to a platform, right? Mm. Yeah. So you can, right. it, it's like the people that, um, you know, say, oh, nobody, I can't, they, they say I'm, I'm being suppressed from their column in the national newspaper in yeah. Australia, you know? It's like, I don't think so. Um, that, that comes up a lot. But I just wanted to mention one other thing before we move on, and that is that, um, this is really kind of bragging, really, but we <laughs> we have, in the last um, seven years that we've been doing this, we've had 10 peer-reviewed publications on this issue, and we've presented at five conferences with posters on the impact that we've had on the anti-vax movement, because actually we've received a fair bit of pushback from academics mm-hmm. um, mm-hmm. who don't like the way that we approach this issue, and so we've sort of been pushed into a position where we had to present evidence mm-hmm. for the efficacy of what we're doing right. because otherwise we'd be hypocrites, let's face it. So we have done studies showing that that we have had actually an impact on fin- on the financial health of these organisations and their reach in the media. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that we all also spend quite a bit of time doing is getting vax- anti-vax papers retracted from the literature. Yeah, yeah. Which All is very so important. important. We're very, very important. Yeah. yeah so we write, re, we write um, papers in response to rubbish that appears in the literature, and if it's really bad, we we try to get it retracted. Yeah. And we've had quite a lot of success doing that. I think we've had a lot of success in that as well. That yeah. there's usually a pretty immediate backlash against really bad papers, like the Seralini paper, etc. And and they do end up getting retracted once we point out, nope, that's actually a piece of crap paper. You should yeah. probably retract I mean, the problem that. is that sometimes papers that are retracted get cited more after they've been retracted. Yeah, than yeah we just wrote about that. Yeah. Yeah. The zombie studies that get cited after they've been retracted. There was, I wrote about that on Science-Based Medicine. There was one article that was terrible. It was cited 600 times. More than half of the citations were after it was retracted. Mm. That's the same for the, for the yeah. Wakefield paper. Yeah. It continues to get cited. Yep. Yeah. Well, good on you, Dr. Rachel. Good on you, mate. Yeah, no worries, mate. Yeah. <laughs> Do I have an American accent yet, or is it still standing? No, not at all. Yeah. Yeah. You have to get a Minnesota accent, you know. That was terrible. That was terrible. <laughs> so, um, conspiracy theories is one thing that we deal with, and, and we like to keep track of the, the science of the things that we, we study. And so there was a paper that came out recently that, that um, had a number of st- put together a number of studies trying to tease apart what is it that leads somebody to believe in conspiracy, conspiracies. Mm-hmm. And essentially, um, just to back up a little bit, essentially what's happening is a combination of um, hyperactive pattern detection, right, which we talk about. We are pattern-recognizing machines. We're good at seeing things that's seeing signal in random noise because our brains are sort of wired to do that. It's massive parallel processors, really good at comparing lots of things simultaneously. And it's like, yeah, that looks like a face, and so you see a face, right? That's a simple uh, uh, example of that. But the same is true of events, of things happening. We sort of see a pattern in events, and we say this, these are all connected. There's an underlying cause 
for all of these things. We also have what's called hyperactive agency detection, we th and we think that that cause has a deliberate agent underneath it. There isn't some default, you know, uh, uh, natural cause. There is somebody deliberately tying these things together. There's one, you know, conspiracy behind it all. Uh, but we also have a logical, rational side in what we neuroscientists call reality testing. That's literally what it's called. Parts of our brain that go, wait a minute, that doesn't make any sense. You know, that doesn't, that breaks the laws of physics or it's implausible or, you know, you know, psych psychology or human motivation is probably a better explanation for that or whatever. We, and that's, that's, isn't that that's our baloney detector? It's our baloney detector, yeah. yeah but, it, but that's the part of the brain that's shut off when you're dreaming. Yeah. So if you're dreaming and you see a pink elephant in the supermarket, you're like, oh, that's cool, and you wouldn't even think twice about it because <laughs> that's been shut off. So that sucks. We're not skeptics when we're dreaming. No. 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 Nah. So, everything. so it's hard to make sense of your dream when you're awake because you're a different person when you're awake. Different parts of your brain are working. So i got to tell a quick side note. I, dreamt, I was having a semi-lucid dream, and in the dream, Bob was saying to me, Jay, this isn't me. This is just an amalgamation of all your memories of me. Like, Bob is educating me in my dream. <laughs> I'm awesome, <laughs> even in dreams. Yeah, I love it. So, um, we... So we know that we have this hyperactive sort of conspiracy detection, and then we pull it back with our reality testing. That's how, it, that's how it's supposed to work, which makes sense if you think about it, because we want to detect all the patterns that are out there, so we want to have a real sensitive pattern detection, but we don't want false positives, so we have to then weed out the, the false positives so that we're left with all the true positive patterns, right? That would be an optimally functioning you know, cognitive machine. Our, you know, because our cognitive machines are not optimally functioning, however. Um, so, yeah, but it's better that you're biased more towards being oversensitive than undersensitive, right? As long as you have the filter, as long as you have the reality filter in place, right? And there's, there's a balance. There's got to be a balance there, uh, just like anything. The psychologists have been debating about, so for people who are conspiracy theorists, are they detecting more patterns or are they rejecting too few patterns? Or both. So they are, is their pattern recognition increased or is their reality testing decreased? Hmm. Or is it both of those things at the same time? My yeah. guess is both. Yeah. 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 So <laughs> that's my guess too. But this study was, was looking specifically at the hypothesis that people who believe in conspiracy theories or believing in conspiracy theories correlates with increased pattern recognition. Mm -hmm. That component of the hypothesis. Right? And didn't they yeah. also say though that a big component here was a lack of a sex life? Yeah. <laughs> yes. They <laughs> they, in a way, in a roundabout way, they did. Oh, really? Yes. <laughs> I know, you're shocked. But in a roundabout way. And what I mean by that is that when people feel threatened or have threatened self-esteem or feel like the world is not working for them, their conspiracy belief goes way up. Well, now I feel bad. Yeah. So, but, you, but you had this intuition that, you know, losers believe in conspiracy theories, and that, I know that's a colloquial term, but that's exactly what the research shows. Okay. That, it's serious. Uh, and so in any case, they did a series of studies where they had people looking for patterns in, like, random noise. Now, not conspiracy patterns, just like... Co coin tosses. They would generate random signals with coin tosses or other things like that. And then they would have see if people see patterns in the noise. And there was a baseline. And then they, if your tendency to believe in conspiracies, like endorsing certain conspiracy thinking, correlated positively with seeing more patterns in randomly generated oh, that noise. Is, that is cool. Yeah, even though it has, you know, it has nothing to do with conspiracy. But theory. did they think also that the, the people that were running the test were like, 
messing with that. <laughs> no, seriously. Yeah, it's probably. That's why it's so hard to do this kind of research because it's all those layers. Then they, what they found was that when you, they sort of made people, they increased their belief in conspiracies using standard psychological techniques. You prime people, you have them read stuff where, you know, it suggests to them. And then when they were, when their conspiracy beliefs were increased artificially in the context of the study, their pattern recognition increased also. Oh, so the, yes. it, it kind of there was not just a correlation; they were able to actually manipulate it a little bit. So don't be surprised if you see coin toss gate. Yeah, <laughs> coin toss gate. Right. Yeah. <laughs> so anyway, it's it's a it's a little very focused of the series of research that they did. It was just looking at this one thing: is there the the cognitive process of pattern recognition? Is it involved with conspiracy thinking? And they concluded that yeah, it is. It is involved. Now that doesn't mean that the reality testing isn't a, an important component. It wasn't a hundred percent correlation. It didn't. They specifically specifically said, this doesn't explain the entire phenomenon of believing yeah, yeah. in conspiracies, but there is absolutely an effect there. And I, that's, you, that's why I, have, I, I had the same reaction that you did, Kara, and I wrote, when I wrote about this, I said, usually when the question is, like in psychology, is it A or is it B, the answer is yes. Yes. Yeah, because, um, because people are complicated, and pretty much every permutation that you can think of is playing some role in yep. the overall phenomenon. It's so not surprising. And it's nearly impossible. Um, it's like, I don't know if it's ever happened where there's a psychological study that explains 100% of the variance within yeah, the group. Right. Yeah, it's just, yeah. it wouldn't happen. Well, not happen. Yeah. So, first, I think it's cool that they're doing this type yeah. of study, but. Is it are they are they leading towards maybe some type of cure or no. medication? Cure for conspiracy? No, I know that, but think about it. Like I'm just trying to like improve therapeutic intervention. Yeah, like maybe. what would they yeah. do to help these people? Well, I mean, I think some of them probably already um, benefit from therapeutic intervention. Like people who have conspiratorial thinking to the extent that it's like delusional thinking yeah. and things like that. They you're, talk, you're talking about when it gets to the point where it's like a diagnosable entity yeah. that needs professional help. But, I think it, but there's a vast gray zone, yeah. you know, and we're all, I mean, I think there's a little conspiracy theorist in all of us, right? We yeah. all tend to have one eye out for the conspiracy and we tend to see patterns. <laughs> yeah. No, seriously. No, it's, it's, it's adaptive. It check, yeah, it's right? adaptive. You yeah, think about it, if it. Sometimes people are conspiring against you, right? Yeah. Whatever that is at work or whatever, and mm. you need to have your radar up for like, yeah, this is not random. This is like these people are campaigning against me or whatever. That's real. yeah. Anybody who has ever been gaslighted, yeah, like, that's what that is. Yeah, but it goes hand in hand to think that you would go to say, let's. You know, I can think of a few examples of people I know pretty well who are yeah. you know really heavy into conspiracies, yeah, yeah. and I don't feel like I could ever go up to them, to them and say, hey, let's work on this. Thing you have going on yeah. because you're a conspiracy theorist because they don't think they're a conspiracy theorist. That's true. I mean, that, that's a, that delusional people never think they're delusional, yeah. right? That's almost by definition they don't have the insight. Um, but it, you know, the, and the authors do get into the fact, and they they do conclude that the ultimate solution to conspiratorial thinking is critical thinking, right? Not, that's really that's the solution. That's the reality filter part of it. Yeah. And and so that you know, so skepticism and critical thinking is the answer. Yeah. That's that's what the answer yeah, but is. What the hell does that mean? Like we can't just no. say, hey, we're going to inject you with you know no, 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 skepticism. No, it's, it's doing everything that we're doing. That's the answer. Not is doing what we're doing, but how about we need to promote. You need to, oh, I see. We need to promote we, we critical our, thinking in general. Okay, right? we put our message out, and that would help influence yeah, these the, other people. To, the, okay. to whatever degree we make people give people critical thinking tools, they will be less inclined to believe in conspiracy. Yeah, I don't know. I, I'm skeptical of that. You think so? No. Well, <laughs> no. I mean, legitimately, I'm, I'm 
because I, I guess I'm going to like the extremes because the people that yeah. really stand out in my life that are that are you know really in the yeah at, at the extreme end where it's pathological never gonna yeah judge. yeah it but is, we're not talking about that we're okay. talking about rank and file it is interesting though that there I, I wonder how strong the correlation is between critical thinking evidence based thinking rational thinking and intelligence because I do know a lot of people who are highly intelligent people who yeah. are the most extreme yeah. conspiracy you know um, so theorists they, they can rationalize very well. Yeah. Well, first of all, yeah, intelligence is not a thing, right? It's exactly. not this one yeah, thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, but there it, are measures of intelligence, yeah, quotients, and things like Some that. measures of intelligence mm-hmm. actually, it, so it's a double-edged sword, mm-hmm. right? Because it can, it can offer you critical thinking tools, but it can also <gasps> offer you a powerful mechanism for motivated reasoning and rationalizing mm-hmm. and justifying your conspiracy thinking yeah. or whatever yeah. pseudoscientific thinking that yeah. you have. And so it depends on how you use it. Absolutely. It's not a, it's not a panacea. It's just it's it's not about yeah. just being smarter or knowing more things. You need to literally have critical thinking tools that you can apply mm-hmm. to yourself. And until you get to that point, nothing really helps. It's the inter- yeah, it's the introspection. That's yeah. the important part, right? Sorry to interrupt, but like um the some of the best marketing techniques out there are basically people using critical thinking for evil. You know what yeah, I mean? Yeah, like, yeah, and yeah, so there yeah. are ways that you can actually sure. use those same skills to convince people yeah. of, of things that are nefarious. So, That's where all the money is. Though. Exactly. <laughs> but, but being able to turn that around and say, I myself fall victim right. to these biases and things. That's the hard part but of the puzzle. I would like to quantify it and mm-hmm. come to, like, how do we handle this? And mm-hmm. we, uh, Steve, you and I and George were on a panel, what, I think it was at Nexus, and we actually talked about like what would we need to do? Yeah. Like how can we change the world, right? right. And we it boils down to education. Yeah. Like having it be something that that people have to you know every year in school there's some type of critical thinking class. Like, I think that's a tangible goal that we could get to. Jay, we have, were you on that panel? I'm pretty sure that was Steve and on me panel. and George on that panel. No, no. Oh, you were also. We did it twice. Oh, you did it twice. Okay, yeah. cool. <laughs> yeah, so it's not a false so like a weird false memory yeah. right now. Okay, but, we both, we both yeah, talked it's, about it's that. It's education, but at every level of life. It's not just yeah. in the school. It's, Absolutely. it's adult education. It's marketing. It's it's you know the media. But getting it's, into it's the canon of, of education. And the culture, yeah, well, and the, in the zeitgeist itself. Yeah, because it's not in politics at all. And so, but if we could see that the most influential people in our society and culture also in embodied those types yeah. of qualities. Yeah. Well, everyone, we're going to take a quick break from our live show at SciCon to talk about our sponsor this week, The Great Courses. You know, we love listening to The Great Courses Plus because this is a profound way for you as a skeptic and as a science enthusiast, if you're not a scientist, to learn about stuff. That's the whole point to it. We want to cram as much info into our heads as we can. And The Great Courses Plus is what you should be using to do that. You know which course I'm really into right now, you guys? The Science of Extreme Weather. I am a huge weather nerd. I always have been. I also love that it's taught by Professor Eric Snodgrass. (laughs) <laughs> and in addition Great to having name. the coolest name ever, he is also an atmospheric scientist at uh, the University of Illinois Urbana-Champaign. And he talks about all sorts of cool things in the series, tornadoes, avalanches, ice storms, blizzards, hurricanes, even things like extreme humidity, fog and rain. Who knew that that could be really dangerous? And you're going to love it because they're giving SGU listeners a full free month, unlimited access Enjoy any of those lectures, but you have to sign up through our special URL. That's thegreatcoursesplus.com slash skeptics. Again, that's thegreatcoursesplus.com slash skeptics. All right, guys, let's get back to our show. Bob, oof, what am I looking at here? That's a, a pit on the moon that's kind of been 
little mysterious over the years. It looks kind of really deep, and people have been saying that oh, maybe there's there's an actual like tube under there, some void. So so this is what uh, what, what my story is about. So this is about um, a, a study that was released in the Science Journal Geophysical Research Letters recently, and they are, they revealed that they have found pretty much de- really good evidence that city-sized lava tubes exist on the moon. City that city-sized yeah. that could one day pro- that could one day protect future uh, moon base alpha inhabitants. Um, I mean, this was this story really, really resonated with me. I talked about it on the show two years ago that these things could be on the moon, and now they've essentially found it. So, so, so the story is: this is how they found it. So, the um, there's a there's a Japanese lunar probe called Selene, and it took it took some radar images of the moon, and they're looking at the radar images, and they they looked at this area where this this uh, this Marius this is called Marius Hill skylight. And because they said skylight? Skylight, skylight, yeah, I love that. it's kind of like an like opening, yeah. right? Yeah. So they looked at the radar image and they saw a very distinctive like drop in the radar echo, and then a, and then a spike, a, oh. an echo spike coming back at the end, which is kind of diagnostic of like there's some there's some void there. But Celine wasn't really optimized for this type of of uh, research. So JAXA, the uh, Japanese space agency, went to NASA and said, "Hey, we need some of your Grail scientists." And the Grail scientists had they had a lunar spacecraft that that did a really detailed uh, gravitational map of the moon, and they said we need to look at that data. So they looked they looked at the data and the gravity map of the of the moon in that area said that there's something there's less gravity there. There's a, a lunar a lunar mass deficit. Um, in that area, so that was so that was like the really the radar image and this gravitational grail image was kind of like a one-two punch of really saying that there's something here. So it, clearly, either there's like a buried you know alien monolith under the ground, or <laughs> or some some big void. And either and, way, it's cool. Yeah. yeah. And, but the, but the uh, thing, those are the only way. two options, yeah, by the course, way. Those are the only That's two. It. It's <laughs> Bob, I got a couple questions. Yeah. So are they are they surmising like that we could eventually build like a station in there? Yes. Sure, sure. That's and, the and whole it, idea. Right. So that it, it would but the, yeah, but the thing is Grail because Grail even found something like this, it has to be immense because Grail is it's sensitive, but it's not so sensitive that they can find like a small burrow. They, if it detects something, it's got to be big. So this is like three at least 3 kilometers and there might be even multiple yeah, so this lava is, tubes. This is like a, an iceberg effect. So how big is that actual hole? Like what are we lo- um, what are we looking at? The skylight itself. Yeah, I'm not sure. I'm not sure how wide that is. Okay, so I'm not sure why that is. It's a big opening, and then underneath it, it's even bigger. Right, and it's clearly, if you look at it, you could kind of see that some rocks have fallen on the bottom, and it's it looks it doesn't look like a crater, right? It looks like an incredibly deep, deep crater. So that's so that they think that's an opening now to this lava tube. But the thing is, um, you may be thinking, well, okay, there's a lava tube, so what? But the the reasoning behind it, why this is important, is I think is really fascinating. Uh, the moon basically, the surface of the moon sucks. It is horrible. The, so you think, oh, the moon is fun. You, you remember the astronauts leaping around, but it's really a horrible place. For a few days, it's great, but if you're going to stay there more than a few days, it is it is deadly. It's beyond deadly. First off, there's the regolith, which is the the moon dust, which is like nasty stuff. The astronauts hated it. It got everywhere, but it's also tiny, like talc. What? The astronauts hated that stuff. It's, it's, it's coarse. It gets everywhere. <laughs> oh, Jay. Yeah, but Jay, I'm starting with the little stuff, and I'm going to build so up this, this stuff. Okay, imagine inhaling this and getting it deep in your lungs. It's also kind of semi-radioactive. Yeah. Would you be okay with that? Also, it's sharp like glass. So imagine you're on the moon, and you get a cut on your cornea. Like, oh, crap, my doctor is 
200, a quarter of a million miles away. What are you going to do? That's not good. You can't touch it, you know, because you got the helmet. Right. You can get, but it could also give you cancer. I mean, it's, it's Wait, really, the moon can give you cancer? Well, I mean, it could make you, yes. it could increase the probability that, like asbestos, like that you're going to get oh, cancer. Okay. So this is, this is nasty stuff. Yeah, yeah. But then it gets even worse because you've got, you've got radiate, ionizing radiation. And that's not, that's not the good radiation. This is the bad radiation. Yeah. The protons and electrons that come from mainly three sources. You've got the, the solar wind from the sun. Which is kind of constant, but it's kind of, it's cumulative. It's like, a, the, if you're exposed to it for a long time, it's going to get, cause problems. There's no magnetosphere, remember, like we have around the Earth. It's just like bare, bare space, essentially, on the surface of the moon. Then there's also solar flares, which are even more energetic. And if you're caught in a solar flare, you, you are, you are in trouble. And then there's also the, um, the galactic cosmic rays, which are even worse. Um, they are even more energetic. And you you know, your suit, your suit's not going to really protect you from, from any of that stuff. Bob, you but, sound like Gimli describing Mordor. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so my concern is looking at that, my first really big concern though, is that if we ever tried to evac, to investigate it, a giant space worm would come out like on Star Wars. Yeah. You know? Yeah. yeah. Right? Sure. Yeah. And it's tube shaped. It's like yeah. worm shaped. I mean, come on. Yeah, that's good, Steve. Um, <laughs> so, uh, but it's, it's even worse than that. So first off, so you got the galactic cosmic rays. But even if, but they can even hit the ground, and then you get your feet get showered with secondary neutron radiation. So it's just like not good, no matter how you look at it. And I haven't even talked about the meteoroids. Did I talk, did I talk about the meteoroids yet? No, I didn't. So they're, I mean, they're small. They're small. They're not really. They, you know, they can be big, but they're generally not that big. But they're like traveling at. 1,100 miles an hour, which no spacesuit, even if you're Iron Man, is not going to protect you. And even no ha- and habitat and habitat can take damage from yeah, something like that's traveling that fast. But you don't even need to get hit because if you're if you're Moon base Alpha is over here and the micrometeoroids hit here, the ejector from that can actually damage your 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 that's habitat. When you get the so yeah, right. So um, so it's really just. You would, if you're going to be on the surface of the moon, like, like Space 1999 with their moon base alpha, it's going to have to be a really beefy surface habitat, really expensive to build. And scientists have looked at these habitats and they've said, all right, if we're going to really build this habitat, maybe we need to bury some of it. And it's like, yes, that's exactly it. And that's what these lava tubes are. Because now you're burying everything, you know, scores of meters below the surface. So you're protected from, you're protected from the regolith because there's no regolith that deep. Um, you're also you're protected from everything I've said the ionizing radiation, but also the uh, the temperature swings on the surface is like a yeah. 300 degree temperature swing. Mm-hmm. Um, so you'll be kind of insulated from that. But you can also do like pristine experiments under there of the composition of the moon and things. I mean, to me, this is like such a yeah. no brainer. Could you seal the mouth and like pressurize the whole thing? The whole yeah, that'd be. Probably problematic. So dangerous. But but the idea, Steve, you can build a habitat underneath that doesn't need to be nearly as beefy as what you would need on the surface. But you You put tents under there. Bob, what about? (laughs) Is there any heat coming from the center of the moon? The moon. I don't well, know. Does that's, anybody that's know? Pretty yeah, it's, 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 pretty not, it's not totally cold. It is solidified. There's a little bit. Okay. It's not active, but this 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 center. Not enough. I'm not sure. It's not completely. Yeah. Okay. Oh, I don't, I don't know. Yeah, you're not, not going to get too much geothermal energy out of out of the moon. Lunar thermal enough to heat up your living room. No, yeah, Luna, Luna, yeah, Luna thermal. But then the final thing that I liked about this is that this whole thing, this whole idea of the lava tubes, really reinforces this major shift that we're seeing in the United States and in other countries turning away from Mars in a, in a lot of, 
a lot of ways, and focusing more on the moon, which we've been t talking about yeah. for years. We really, people were talking about going to Mars, and I said, why? Why are we going to, why are you talking about going to Mars? We can really get our stuff together on the moon first, dealing with this radiation, dealing with just living away so far from the Earth, but all, only be three days away. Yeah. I mean, if you break a bone, if something bad happens, I mean, you're really just three days away. Um, from from serious help. Whereas if you're on Mars, you are. I mean, yeah, we'll see in about you know a year, fourteen, sixteen months, or whatever. So uh, so that's so, and I think these lunar these lava tubes can really play a great role in yeah. in learning what we need to learn to live off Earth before we go to Mars. So we need to send a mission to that hole, yeah. basically. Yeah. yeah, yeah, absolutely. Cool. All right, um, Jay. Yes. Uh, you were going to tell us about T Rex, and you wanted me to to display an anatomically correct representation. <laughs> I did. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. We've learned a lot of things about T. Rex recently. We found out they're made out of plastic. Yeah, <laughs> that they have a really funny voice. Yeah. Um, so right, yeah, do I do have another slightly yeah, better? Yeah, this is this is a little more accurate. There you go. Oh, hold on. So this is um, a, a news item about the anatomy of the arms, the T. Rex arms, and you know, I'm, I'm sure a lot of people have seen them and were like, "What's with the baby arms? Like, why did T. Rex have these short little arms?" So um, a uh, scientists have been doing some research to try to figure some details out. So I thought, let me just give you some basic information about T-Rex that you may or may not know. So they lived in what is now Western North America. Um, they lived 68 to 66 million years ago. Uh, they were among the last non-avian dinosaurs, Steve. Yeah, that's correct. Okay, just letting you know. Uh, they were... <laughs> They were a bipedal carnivore, which I think everybody here knows. Uh, they were big. They were 12.3 uh, meters uh, long and up to 3.5 uh, meters tall or 12 feet tall on the hips. Uh, 8 to 4 metric tons, and that's about the weight of a, a large backhoe, you know, like mm -hmm. you know, a big machine like that. That's heavy. Um, so it was one of the largest theropods, and uh, most researchers believe that it, it had the strongest bite force of all terrestrial animals ever. Right. Wow. Really? Number yeah. one? Yeah, I think only, yeah. only the, that shark, the megalodon, was yeah. okay, more bite. Okay, yeah, but you know, that's, it was nasty. Yeah. Um, and they, you know, there's been a, an argument also about uh, whether it was T-Rex an uh, apex predator or a scavenger. Mm -hmm. And it, they've been batting it back and forth for a long time. And I think the, the current knowledge is that it was largely a predator that if it found food, it would eat it. Which is like right. most predators. Yeah. Sure. yeah. yeah. Kind of like, I would do that too. That's the way I would do And our ancestor did do that. Yeah. So their little, tweaky little arms, they were a meter long. And uh, some scientists think that they were vestigial. Mm -hmm. you know, from a previous version. So uh, a paleontologist named Stephen Stanley at the University of Hawaii at Manoa argued that the small limbs were actually well adapted for close combat and they had great slashing ability with, mm -hmm. with the, uh, the wow. nasty claws that they had. So ancestors of the T-Rex had longer arms <clears throat> and most likely used them for grasping. So they would, they would use them like a hand kind of. But over time, the, they started to grasp with their mouth, which mm -hmm. makes sense. Um, and some theorize that the arms were just a remnant from, from that time period, only used for maybe mating, maneuvering, or nothing. Mm -hmm. um, and you can make any jokes you want in your mind about that. Um, so the, the scientist Stanley, he made some points about the arms. He said, no, they were actually very muscular. Mm -hmm. He said that they, they had robust bones, and, and they were both you know, strong enough to take damage from battling, so that the arms were good for battling, but also can take damage. Which Jay, I, I remember reading years ago um, that they, yeah, they, those, their arms were indeed very strong. In fact, they said that they could like curl. Like, what, what would you think an average human could curl for their biceps? Like, like, uh, like, for one, like what, 40 pounds maybe? It, 
he said that they can probably curl 200 pounds. And these were like, these were beefy arms. Yeah. At least on a human scale, they were yeah, pretty I would, strong. I would think it would be more than that. That sounds low. He said, that's what I read, 200 okay. pounds. Interesting. Updated analysis may yeah. change that, though. But. So the, yeah, other, the other thing he mentioned was that both arms had two claws about 10, 10 centimeters long. And in, the, in this case, two claws is actually better than three or more because if you think about it, when it comes down with the claws, there's only two, there's only two points of contact and each one of them would have more energy in it from, from the arm right, swing. So right. instead of spreading it out like, you know, like a larger mm-hmm. animal, mm-hmm. I, and I, that's a, I think a very, so have two point. deeper cuts rather than three more superficial yep. cuts and it evolved to optimize. Like, up. um, like this, like the steak hook, mm-hmm. you know, like the meat hook that you use when you're cooking. If he, if he could attack with his claws, why wouldn't he just to attack with his real weapon, his mouth. I would imagine if this scientist is correct that it was doing all of that at the same both. time. You know, you're but getting then, it up here, you can bite it, it clamp here. on, and while it's biting, just like. Yeah, well, yeah think yeah, about all of the like different Wolverine. ways that organisms um, kill. Yeah, yeah. You know, some of them, like if you ever watch a cat, they'll bite the neck and then they'll disembowel with their yeah, claws. With the bat, the you know what I mean? Yeah, so there yeah. might be, yeah, oh, just all All right, but Jay, then why does Wolverine have three claws, though? He had four. He only Steve, three. Steve, Wolverine's <laughs> not real. <laughs> <laughs> I keep getting confused. Sorry. I, I guess because there's three spaces there. Yeah, but it's, yeah. Oh, yeah. So the claws also had a bevel that were sharp and similar to a bear's claw. Um, so this is actually for doing physical damage yeah, to so tissue. they had the features of an attack weapon. What, what does that mean, a, a bevel? Is that like it's serrated? Yeah, it had, it had uh, bevels no? in it, so it, it would cut. It was a slashing implement. Oh. Yeah. Um, okay. In contrast to an eagle's claw, which is more for grasping. And if you look at an eagle's claw, they look nasty, but they do have like this hook shape so that it's good for grabbing onto branches, it's good for grabbing onto fish and prey yeah. and things like that. But these are more um, straight. They're like... They're yeah, they're not but there is still a raging debate. Some scientists are not agreeing with these findings, and they're still saying, "No, no, the, you know, the arms were, were really not that powerful." But uh, you know, this is science. You know, we're seeing people yeah. come up with theories. But he has a compelling argument to make. I think it sounds, so. and you know, when you look at them again, so, yeah, they're tiny compared to the body, but they still look like they could have been effective, especially at close up, as you say. Yeah, I mean, just imagine, you know, a human, a tall human, six foot human, would be right about where the knee is. Yeah. And now imagine that, that mouth coming down on you. you and think, think about this too. So what, I wonder if there were, um, prey or enemies of the, of the T-Rex that could get like inside its mouth, right? Yeah. So as you know, if you have a really big weapon, the one way you deal with it is you get inside. You get too close to them to use the big weapon, but then he has the close-up weapons. So like you get inside, he'll, he'll screw you up with the arms, yeah. right? So you, <laughs> yeah, no, that makes sense. That makes sense. I never heard anyone talk about the feet. I guess they yeah. didn't, they didn't attack with the feet. No, I think they were for running. Yeah, yeah. And standing. And there were there have been debates for <laughs> stomping for for a while about how fast you know could T Rex run, and the, the current consensus is pretty darn fast. And also, was it more upright or was it yeah, more horizontal. Really horizontal? No, it was horizontal. Yeah. So yeah. Like, we used to think it was the head yeah. and the tail balance each other, and the, the primary reason why the arms shrank was so that the head could have more weight with the same balance. Yeah. Yeah. So the weight just shifted from the arms to the head. But again, that doesn't mean that the arms became completely useless. They yeah. just became co-opted for close-up 
secondary, you know, like weapon. Sex, yeah. yeah. And like, and the T Rex is a true, he's a true biped. Yeah. You know, a lot of yeah. um, other therapods were facultative bipeds. So they, facultative? Yeah, their arms were cool. long enough that they could sort of use them but if they needed to, to, but they yeah. mostly were bi- yeah. bipedal. But he's a true biped. Like, he could not use his arms to mm-hmm. walk. So, no. in that sense, having them be longer might have meant that they were in the way, yeah. you know? Yeah, yeah. And you also sometimes see them illustrated, and I wonder how true to life this is, using their tail as a weapon. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, it counterbalances their head as like a giant. But it's still a big muscular whip. Exactly. Yeah, Yeah, like it could really do some damage. All right. So, yeah, aren't they cute? Raccoons are adorable. They're so cute. Wait, that's your deck. This is my deck, actually. (laughs) So, need to paint you. This summer, I know, I know. Don't get me started. So, uh, this summer, there was a mommy raccoon and three baby raccoons visiting our deck every night. Visiting? Yes, they were visiting. (laughs) Wait, no. And, because they they were friends with my dog who liked to sit and bark at them, and they would stand there and look at him while he was barking. (laughs) No, but they, they were coming after my bird feeders. Right, and yeah. then there's no stopping them. There is no stopping the raccoons. They were throwing. They were. They were taking that. You could see like I have a suet caser. They would take it off of that hook. Whoa! They would take it off the hook, and they would get. They would open it up. They Wait, would, what they did would, you call that? It's a suet, 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 suet cage. Suet cage. Suet cage. Suet. Sure. Yeah. It's a basically it's like a little rectangle of fat that you put in there for the birds. Oh, right? okay. Yeah. Okay. And so the, and they, but it's high density food. Yeah. yeah. So everyone's after that. We basically had to bring all of our bird feeders in at night. Mm-hmm. That's all. That was it. That was there was no way to keep them from wow. emptying emptying them. Yeah. yeah. So we had to just bring them in every single night. <laughs> uh, but they're adorable. They're but anyway, so cute. they are. <laughs> and they were even a little bit bigger here when I when we they, we first saw them. They were these little tiny baby raccoons. They were awesome. Steve, yeah. can I add something to that? Yeah. We had the same problem. Yeah. So we every night we would fill up the bird feeders so that in the morning when the birds came at dawn there would be food for them and we'd go out in the morning and there'd be no seed left. And so we put up a trail cam because we mm. couldn't because we had like a, a shepherd's hook that was on yep. so it was a fence that was kind of six foot high and then a shepherd's hook that hooked out over the edge of yeah, the yeah. garden. That's what we had. And so I said to my friends, "There's no way raccoons can get that." And yeah. so we put out a trail cam and. <laughs> John um, got the video the next day, and there was a party. There was like five of them. Yeah. yeah. And they were, they were actually climbing up onto the fence and then onto the shepherd's hook and just like with their paws. They, and they would empty that feeder every night. Yeah. See, this feeds really nicely into this news story, actually, that you, that you, that you said that story because this news story is actually linked to uh, quite a famous um, quote-unquote intelligence test. I don't know if intelligence is quite the right word to use, but a test of um, how easily different animals um, can can kind of break, yeah, break a, a problem-solving um, mechanism. And so the, the test is called the Aesop's Fable test because there's one Aesop's Fable in which there's a cow and he can't, he's thirsty, but he can't get the water out of the pitcher because the water level's too low. Um, and then a bird comes along and drops stones in the bottom of it and it raises the water level and then they can drink. Um, and so they've done this test before on some birds, mostly corvids, you know, crows, ravens, um, scrub jays, really smart, yeah, yeah, who are really smart, and also um, apes, great apes. And so they decided that they wanted to do this test on raccoons. Um, I myself have raccoons on my property all the time. We have the trash cans, like most, um, I think, municipalities in the U.S. have, mm-hmm. where they're the trash cans with the big lid. Yeah, yeah. Um, and yeah. we've had to figure out how to, like, jimmy them underneath, because they're, the raccoons open them every night yeah. and pull... 
but they're messy. It's like if they would just be clean about it, I'd be okay if they were eating my food. But there's like chicken bones, and I'm like, we, didn't, we haven't eaten chicken. Like, I don't know where did that come from. And, and they're bold. Like, I remember pulling up into my driveway, and they're sitting there on top just... And I'm literally like, go away, trash panda, like yelling at them. Trash panda. Well, they want, they like, look you in the eye. And they're like, mm. They will stare you down. They don't care. They did not give an inch to my big dog. They just stared Yeah, they don't care. So wait, I, got a, I have a story. Yes. So my wife and I, our, our bedroom, like our driveway is right where our, above our, below our bedroom. So we can hear everything that's going on where the trash bins are. Mm-hmm. So we heard thumping night after night after night. So one night... I go into the garage, and I'm like, I wanted to see what's going on. I figure it was raccoons. I open the garage, like 11 o'clock at night. I turn around. I turn around again, and he snuck in behind me, <laughs> grabbed the garbage bag that I was queued up to put into the bin the next morning because I was leaving garbage in the garage, and he ran off with a garbage <laughs> bag. Yeah. Yeah. No? They're incredibly adaptive. Like, these are really, really adaptive animals. They've learned how to coexist yeah. in urban environments in a really impressive way. And so these researchers decided to give them this test. And you can kind of see in this picture the apparatus. So it's a really skinny tube, and the water level is so low that he can't reach his paw down to... I'm not sure if you can tell. It just looks like there's white scum on top of the water, yeah. but that's actually marshmallows. Mm. And so he really wants those marshmallows. But he can't quite reach them. And so the test is, if there are um, balls like lying about, will they think to drop the balls into the water to raise up the water level and then be able to reach the marshmallows? So two out of ten raccoons figured out how to do it, which is, you know, not most of them, um, but, but still impressive, yeah. Um, and then they were like, okay, let's up the ante a little bit, like they do with the corvids and with the apes, where they put some balls that sink and some balls that float. And they actually use, you know, very scientific terminology, and they call them functional objects and non-functional objects, because a ball that sinks will raise the water level. But a non-functional object, a ball that... Ooh, Gosh, this thing's falling off my ear. Um, a non-functional object, a ball that floats, shouldn't raise the water level, just sit on top. But alas, these raccoons were like, screw your functional and non-functional objects. <laughs> Multiple raccoons figured out how to just push the floaty ball up and down really fast and really hard, and the, the marshmallows would splash up onto the sides of the tube. So it was a functional yeah, object. Yeah, it became a functional object. And it would scrape them off the side of a tube and eat them. Another one figured out wow. that if it just rolled the ball at the top, it would scoop all of the marshmallows up and they would stick to the ball, and then it could eat them. Another one. Wow. And they knew that they would try to like pull the tube off. So it's really well fixed. Like, you can't take this thing apart. But another one figured out how to actually undo the base from the ground and knock the entire apparatus over. Like they were doing to my bird feeders. Exactly. To get in there. And so they realized that this paradigm for raccoon problem solving was not sufficient because they upended the test itself. That's they right. were smarter than the test. Kobayashi Maru, they busted it. Yeah. So the researchers found out <laughs> the, researchers, the researchers found out that the raccoons were actually studying them. Exactly, yeah. Yeah. They found their lab notes the next day. It was really scary. 
And the funny thing is, um, there are other examples of organisms upending the test to some extent. Um, there was a test with orangutans, um, historically, where they had the same tube, but there was no uh, hard objects nearby. And so the orangutans realized, but there was water nearby, but they couldn't carry the water. There was no um, vessel to carry the water. So they would fill up their cheeks with water and go over and spit water into it, and that would raise the level. Well, couldn't they just pee in there, too? That and would work. And so one orangutan just pissed in it. Yeah. <laughs> he figured out that was a much track. I guess he didn't mind that there was, like, pee all over the nuts that were floating at the top. There were peanuts. There were peanuts. peanuts. Oh. There were peanuts. Um, yeah, so... Yeah, that's good. So that's actually literally the last line of this article. <laughs> Nice. Oh, and I should I should specify. Sorry, I made a mistake there. The orangutans figured out how to spit the the mouthfuls of water. It was actually a chimpanzee. Yeah, that it was a you know, very chimpy kind well, of a thing to do. Yeah. So super interesting. Whenever there's a paradigm that animal researchers will develop, it's so neat to see that it's like you got to think of every single yeah. so contingency. I bet you. I bet you that raccoons are getting more intelligent as we try to thwart them, and the smart ones break our. Yeah. Ways of keeping our food from them. Well, absolutely. I mean, they're going to be like the Guardians of the Galaxy. Which, well, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, and we have to do this, right? In urban environments, like I have to rig my trash can so that the raccoons can't open the lids. And they'll figure out. Yeah, if you ever go, if you've ever gone um, camping in parts of like the Pacific. When we go camping, there are bear boxes in Northern California. We have black bears, and there are bear boxes at your campsite, right? Because the bears will yeah. rip into your car to get your food. They're super aggressive when it comes to food. And so the bear boxes are these special boxes where they can't fit their paw up inside of it to pull the hook and bring it down, yeah. but a, a human being can. So you have to get in front of these yeah. um, these yeah. intelligent creatures. Yeah. Oh there's actually, there's a bunch of raccoons in Wyoming that have managed to get a black bear into trouble, I reckon, because... One of my friends is losing all his bird feed seed at night and the rangers came through and said, oh, there's a black bear around here, man. And he put up his trail cam and once again, it's party time with yeah. the raccoons. <laughs> and so they managed to blame the black bear and I'm sure it's them. It's not a bear. Uh, well, that's over the hedge now. That's what you get. <laughs> yeah. All right. So, Evan, I understand that millennials, those damn millennials... They started being called that. I have two daughters who are millennials. Like, don't call us. What that. is with that stock photo, by the way? I don't know what he has. This headline has two parts to it a good part and a bad part. Why millennials are ditching religion, yay, for witchcraft and astrology, boo. Right. So, and uh, they drew their data from our friends at Pew Research Center, and I call them our friends because the folks at Pew have told us that they like the work we do at SGU. So that's why I call them our friends. So, good news first. Most U.S. adults now say it is not necessary to believe in God to be moral and have good values. 56% in the most recent survey, and that is up from 49% in 2011. It, the increase uh, reflects the continued growth in the share of population that has no religious affiliation. Uh, it's also the result of changing attitudes among those who do identify with religion, and that includes uh, evangelical, evangelical Protestants, white evangelical Protestants. So that's part of the story. Now, according to the National Science Foundation, more than half of the young adults in the United States believe astrology is a science. No. Get this now. Compare that to China, 8%. Yeah. Of people in China. Uh, no, as, but they believe in Jews. I mean, that's just well, a cultural okay, right. Seriously, that's just. 
It's one or the other, right? I, I, right, that, that is true. But it still is a sad commentary, yeah, I think, anyway, anyway, you slice it. So the uh, psychic services industry, uh, which not only includes things like astrology, but uh, uh, aura readings, um, mediumship, tarot card readings, palmistry, all these things, it grew 2% between 2011 and 2016 in the United States. And the what they call the metaphysical services industry, that's a term, uh, $2 billion annually. Yeah. The, the metaphysical services industry. The metaphysical services industry. Big metaphysical. Sounds official. It's all crap. It sounds like like a role in a Tim Burton movie. Or something. Yeah. You know what I mean? <laughs> That's right. You can't make this stuff oh up. Oh my can gosh. Um, <laughs> and there are, you know, they, the article itself cites some uh, interesting examples. Uh, there is a Brooklyn-based metaphysical boutique. Um, they cater to New Yorkers in their 20s. Their store offers workshops like Witchcraft 101, Astrology 101. Is that what they're calling it? Yes. And Spirit Seance. Right. Man. Yes. Amazing. Um, and it's another, not tongue-in-cheek. No. Oh, no. No, quite serious. Uh, another example. Uh, co- uh, this woman, uh, Banu Guler, the co-founder of an artificial intelligence-powered astrology app, which is called CoStar. Uh, October 12, they launched, and they, it was so popular, uh, their website crashed three times as they tried to you know, get it up in, for service for everyone. Yeah. Well, that's what they said. That's what they said. It could have been they were incompetent, too. Yeah. It's true. It's true. It could be that. And then, finally, um, a woman, Danielle Akoya, founder of the spiritual subscription service Mystic Lipstick. <laughs> Her customer base is growing by leaps and bounds. The uh, astrologer sells a mystic box subscription, which includes crystals, Reiki-infused bath salts, and incense customized, get this, to the unique energy of the current moon cycle. And you can subscribe to that service for $15 a month. She has seen a 75% increase in her customers in the last uh, year. Or you can get a premium membership of the SGU for yeah. only eight dollars a month. <laughs> <laughs> Just saying. But yes, I mean, I think what this shows, in my opinion, is that th- this reinforces the notion that we can't just. Uh, you know, fight one particular belief with information or facts, right? The underlying right. problem of critical thinking versus susceptibility to metaphysical beliefs, that's the issue. Otherwise, they're just going to shift over from one thing to some other thing. Yeah, that's right, right? Stephen. You talked about that yesterday in your talk. You can't just, you know, tell people, no, this isn't the way it goes. Here is how it actually is. You have to give them something yeah. else. You have to give them something. You can't just debunk. Yeah. We've got to give them the skeptical narrative. Yeah. Exactly right. right. Exactly. All right, cool. Um, we have time for science or fiction. It's time for science or fiction. I have a theme. The theme is Las Vegas. (laughs) Yay, a lot of Las Vegas experts out there. That was really pathetic. (laughs) (laughs) All right, here we go. During World War II, this is item number one, by the way. During World War II, a Nazi plan to blow up the Hoover Dam was narrowly thwarted by an observant fisherman who reported the agent's suspicious activity. Item number two, Las Vegas serves 60,000 pounds of shrimp every day, more than the rest of the United States combined. Item number three, in the 1950s, atomic testing was conducted just 65 miles north of Las Vegas and was clearly visible from the casinos and promoted as a tourist attraction. So, as we do at live shows, I'm going to poll the audience. 
Then we'll give our, here our panel of experts, then I'll see how they influenced you. We're gonna do the single clap when I drop my hand. So, if you think the one about the World War II plan to blow up the Hoover Dam is the fiction, clap. If you think that 60,000 pounds of shrimp every day is the fiction, clap. If you think that the atomic testing as a tourist attraction is the fiction, clap. Oh, all right, wow. I think one and two are close, less on number three. One and two are dead even in my opinion. Yeah, all right. Rachie, what do you think? Um, I am suspicious of the numbers that you've put in number two. I mean, it sounds plausible, but I reckon you fiddled with the numbers there. So I, I like to know. fiddle with things. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you do things like that. You throw red herrings in, like it's probably forty thousand pounds, not sixty thousand pounds. So I don't know. It's Fifty-nine. Fifty-nine point <laughs> nine nine nine. He wouldn't do that. Yeah. yeah. He's, he's, um, there's an unwritten rule of order of magnitude. If I'm just yeah. messing with the numbers, yeah, it have to be yes. six or six hundred thousand. Yeah. I think number three is correct. I think it's science because I and and it's a very tenuous reason that I have is because I've been to the like nuclear. Museum museum around here. <laughs> it's like a nuclear museum just yeah. up the road and you yeah. can go right. there. Yeah. Um, and, I, and I do think that at one point uh, blowing stuff up was promoted as a tourist attraction. <laughs> so I'm going to say that's science. I'm going to say that number two also is science and I think number one is fiction. The, the Nazi, the Nazi. Yeah. Yeah. fiction. Yeah. Okay, Evan. Fiction. Oh, gosh. The, the, that's Nazi plan to blow up the Hoover Dam narrowly. This sounds familiar to me, but I don't know if you've tweaked it in some way. Um, boy, did they get into the Hoover Dam? You know, they did have their spies. They did have their agents in the United States. That is shown. In fact, their boats uh, taking pictures of our coastlines. But did they get all the way to the Hoover Dam? That's the question. And then shrimp. 60,000 pounds of shrimp every day. Okay. More than the rest of the United States combined, this is the problem I'm having with this one. Uh, that, that number just doesn't seem to add up for me. Rest of the United States combined. I mean, you know, places even like Alaska, I would imagine that that would take, so I'm not, I don't think I'm buying that one. And the atomic testing one, 65 miles north of Las Vegas, yeah, I can believe that. I'm gonna go with the shrimp as the fiction. Okay, Jay? I have no problem with the atomic testing one. Yeah, it just seems, like, if, if they could see it, then why not? Why not use that for marketing? 60,000 pounds, 600,000 pounds. I can't visualize any of it. All I know is I have seen shrimp a lot in the past three days. <laughs> so, sure. Now, here's what I don't like about the World War II thing. First, why blow up the Hoover Dam? If, if they had agents that had bombs that could do destroy something, why the Hoover Dam? Like, I mean, I'm not sure about how... Power generation. Yeah, but I understand what it does. Um, <laughs> but the point is, how bad would it have been for the infrastructure of, the, of this part of the United States to do it? Like, why not blow up a, you know, a facility where they're building planes or whatever? So I just think that would be a waste of effort uh, for a lot of reasons. And the other thing is I am a fan of World War II, and just on the sheer fact that I've never heard about this is putting up a big red flag for me. So I think that's the fiction. Tara? I mean, when I first read all of them, the, the Nazi one is the one that stood out to me, but I always get myself in trouble because then I'm like, that means it must be science, and then I, I, I don't know. Um, I think the atomic testing one could be science. It could be fiction, but it could be science. 
I definitely have. <laughs> I definitely have images in my definitely mind. Yes, Kara, it's your job to, to make a decision. I know, I know. I have images of my mind of the sort of um, 50s, 60s atomic era, like desert scapes, like Fallout the, Four. It's exactly right, like Steve. Fallout. <laughs> Love it. I'm thinking more like the Welcome to Las Vegas sign has that vibe to it, and it just you know it reminds me a little of like Palm Springs or of like um, uh, Nevada, or we are in Nevada. Um, what do you call it? New Mexico. It has that kind of vibe to it. So I don't know. That one sticks out to me as though it could be science. Um, 60,000 pounds of shrimp. I, what if it's like 6,000? Mm-hmm. That yeah. could be it. It could be just that it's 6,000. I do believe that it would be more than the rest of the U.S. combined. I'm assuming you mean, Steve, per day. More than the rest of the United States. Each a day. Yeah, exactly. That part of it, I would believe, absolutely. Like Alaska, like nobody lives in Alaska. Like there are people. It's a very low population state. You know what I mean? So I don't think that they, even though they shrimp or they catch a lot of shrimp, I don't think they eat a lot of shrimp um, comparatively. Um, but the World War II, I'm like, I, there were Nazis hanging out in the U.S. I didn't even know that there were like Nazis trying to blow things up in the U.S. during World War II. I guess so. I don't. Steve, why do you do? I've got to just make a decision. I'm gonna go with um, who, who went with number one, Rachie and Rachie Jay. and Jay. Yeah, I'm gonna go with Rachie and Jay and with say the Nazis. Say the Nazis right. is the fiction. All right, Bob. All right. I'll try to be a little quick here. The first one that really caught my mind was the uh, the atomic testing, 65 miles. I mean, I know it was in the 50s, but come on. I mean. That's, that seems too close. I mean, it's beyond the horizon, but but still, you know, you get a nice little, uh, you know, some change in the weather that could blow some of that stuff down here. It's that still found me. It seems very surprising. But then again, there is that that, that museum that's kind of close. But uh, I'm gonna have to defer to uh, the, the the strategy of like I would have heard of it, and that's for World War II, the, the Hoover Dam one. And Jay, I, I, I do think that there is some interesting reasons why they, they would have done that. First off, it would have been demoralizing to think that they could have done, could have blown that up. I mean, that thing, that's a monument. I mean, that, that, the construction for that, the effort, if they blew that up, that would have been horrible. Yeah, but, but I'm gonna say, I have to say, but I think that we would even have fought harder then, you know? Like, it would have had the adverse effect. Well, and I also wonder, like, the cost of human life on that is relatively low. The cost of infrastructure side, but the cost of human life is low, and in my mind, that would actually be a consideration of the Nazis. Yeah. Well, I'm still going to say that one is fiction. Yeah. Okay, so we'll see how much you influence the crowd. If now, do you think that the Nazi plan to blow up the Hoover Dam is the fiction? Clap. Uh, 60,000 pounds of shrimp a day is fiction. Clap. Oh, no. Close. And <laughs> atomic tourism is the fiction. Clap. Steve, I got a knock on the audience. Evan's feeling really good. I saw three people clap for two of them. (laughs) (laughs) But good odds there. To my ears, it sounded like the audience is going against you guys. It did to me too. Influenced them to disagree with you. Yeah, backfire effect. But on the on the the, no one on the panel thinks that the atomic bomb is the fiction, correct? And most of the audience. Doesn't think yeah, it's the fiction. So we'll start there. In the 1950s, atomic testing was conducted just 65 miles north of Las Vegas and was clearly visible from the casinos and promoted as a tourist attraction. I have a picture that will inform. Uh, no way. One. There is a the strip at the time. You can see mm-hmm. the nugget. You can see the casino. That light in the background is not the sun. That is <laughs> well, the initial flash of a nuclear explosion. And moments later, there is the mushroom cloud. Wow. That's scary that's awesome. as hell. Oh, People 
We were so stupid. <laughs> like, that wasn't even that long ago. No, I was <laughs> And yes, it was, it was sold as a tourist attraction. And that's why, yes, there's a museum. And there was a Miss Atomic Bomb with like an atomic mushroom cloud as a dress, you know. <laughs> It, it, it totally has a Fallout 4 vibe. Yeah, it does. Totally. The culture of that video game <laughs> is, it is the 1950s. Right, right. Including this sort of, is it the atomic bomb is wonderful kind of, you know, vibe to it. Like yeah. people were unconcerned like, like about it. century modern. Yeah, it was full atomic. Yeah, it was awesome, awesome. So That's a scary freaking picture. What's going Right, look at that. This is, there were multiple pictures that I found, but that's, there we go. Though. I love the flash and then, wow. mm, gotta love it. Okay. So let's go to number one. During World War II, a Nazi plan to blow up the Hoover Dam was narrowly thwarted by an observant fisherman who reported the agent's suspicious activity. And everyone on the panel but Evan thinks that one is the fiction. Evan, you've had some solo wins recently. Maybe this yes. will be another one. We'll see. I think um, that the, this, this was number two for the audience. The audience went more for number two, right? This is a, this, so less than, half, less than half of the audience think this one is the fiction. And this one is... Fiction. Oh! Now, but interesting story. So we, we built the Hoover Dam. It was a massive project. It was a massive uh, uh, obsession of American pride in our ingenuity and and oh, our. Yeah, Bob was absolutely right. There was a huge psychological component of the Hoover Dam, and it's not just power. It's also like water to the region, including yeah. Las Vegas. Yeah. And we actually uncovered through our espionage, a Nazi plan to blow up the Hoover Dam. They were going to, to ride a tourist boat up to the dam, plant explosives, and blow it up. Yeah. Huh. But, but we got wind of it before they ever even got to the execution phase. And so we, like, had first of all, we banned any you know, private boats anywhere near the dam. There's a pillbox where they put machine guns right above the dam. It's still there today. Oh, wow. They, like, put guard, they put the, the army on the dam, so they, they just basically completely beefed up security, and they never, the plan never had a chance, so they never even attempted, because we just said, oh, too, you're not going not gonna to get in this way. So even though there may have been an observant fisherman, he did not um, well, support we, anything. They never got close. <laughs> yeah. was never, they never did anything. It was a, we, our spies, got the plan, and we put the security in place, and it never happened. Yep. Nice. Yeah. Okay. That's so cool. all of that means that Las Vegas serves 60,000 pounds of shrimp every day, more than the rest of the United States combined, is science. Wow. <laughs> I do have to put the slightest bit of an asterisk next to it. So every source says that, including government sources. I had reliable sources saying, yep, that's a fact. Okay. Um, but couldn't find a really a primary, primary source. Interesting. So I just have to say that, and it's plausible. A lot of people like calculated how much that should be. We, um, people did the, did the numbers like, yeah, that's about right. If like, you know, if people, you know, if Las Vegas is eating this many pounds of shrimp a day, that kind of works out based on the tourist numbers. And yes, it's a lot of shrimp. Most of it comes from Asia. Uh, but they are really? building. There are building some local shrimp farms. I mean, it's just you know, and shrimp in general, American consumption of shrimp is on the rise. Um, it's a good source of protein. And again, micro farming, for farming small things, is a very efficient way to use our resources. So, yeah, so shrimp is on the rise. But so that's that's it, true as far as I could tell. And if anyone yeah. could find a primary source that says it's not true, I'll happily you know take that. I'll back. find it. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> my decision. I spent a long time. And I, 
I, even Snopes was like, we couldn't find an answer to it. You know, they, yeah. they so, but good luck. Uh, if you can find a primary, but again, I figured a government source, a government source was good enough to at least have it be part of science fiction with the asterisk. So if okay. it's good enough for you, Steve, fine. Yeah, okay. I'm just saying, full disclosure, full transparency, okay? But I, you know, I need a cool item for science fiction in Las Vegas. Okay. Evan, you are going to uh, finish us up with a quick quote. I believe that a person should take an affirmative outlook. There are always problems in life, old and new, uncertainties and unexpected contingencies. The optimal way to deal with this is not to give up in despair, but to move ahead using the best intelligence and resources that we have to overcome adversity. Paul Kurtz. Thank you all for joining me this week. Thanks to CSI. Thanks to all of you in the audience for joining us. It was a pleasure. And until next week, this is your Skeptic's Guide to the Universe. The Skeptic's Guide to the Universe is produced by SGU Productions, dedicated to promoting science and critical thinking. For more information on this and other episodes, please visit our website at theskepticsguide.org, where you will find the show notes as well as links to our blogs, videos, online forum, and other content. You can send us feedback or questions to info at theskepticsguide.org. Also, please consider supporting the SGU by visiting the store page on our website, where you will find merchandise, premium content, and subscription information. Our listeners are what make SGU possible.